Welcome to the Plant Cunning Podcast, where we explore a relationship to plants, other people, and the mysteries of nature. Coming to you from the High Allegheny Plateau in central New York, we are your hosts, A.C. Staubel and Isaac Hill. Episode 40, Radical Vitalism with Janet Kent. In this episode, we speak with Janet about how she got into herbalism as a young punk. Talk about starting Terra Silva Herb School in Asheville, North Carolina, with her friends. About radical vitalism and what that means. We talk about the autonomic nervous system and herbs to help with the stress of our lives. And we speak about grief relief, one of her famous formulas. I hope you enjoy the episode. So welcome Janet Kent to the Plant Cunning Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you guys for inviting me to be here. Absolutely. So you're an herbalist, an educator, you're a gardener, writer in the Catua bioregion of the Blue Ridge Mountains in North Carolina. Um, I guess I'll start with our traditional first question. Um, how did you come to the plant path? Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm trying to figure out the best pathway to that question without talking for too long about just one thing, but what I will say is that a few different ways. I was definitely raised by naturalists, um, like hillbilly wildflower freaks, basically. So I did grow up, and I'm from around here. A lot of people who live in Southern Appalachia are not from here now, um, but I did grow up around here. But so I learned a lot of these plants in this incredibly rich bioregion pretty early, but not medicinal use, just recognizing them because a lot of them are also interesting botanically. Uh, but really as a punk, honestly, as a young punk, a lot of people, our communities were very much into do-it-yourself culture. So um, trying to be as autonomous as possible. Uh, and so I would also add anarchism into that part of the story, which is that the idea that we need to have vibrant communities and networks that take care of themselves because we need to be reliant on each other for support and for care and to have as much disengagement with the system as possible really because we saw that the wealth-based healthcare system and capitalism basically are not the best for our bodies and minds and definitely that most of us did not have very good access to healthcare. So the idea that we might be able to grow and harvest our own medicine and take care of each other that way was incredibly empowering. Mm. So I think a lot of folks come into herbalism either because they're really interested in the body or, and, or they, they're sick and they use herbs to get well, or they're really interested in plants. But there's a third path that we don't always talk about, which is the autonomous path, which is wanting to actually be more in charge of our health yeah and that seems especially apt in appalachia yes absolutely. tradition of i mean you don't you can't go to a doctor it's two hours away right exactly yeah and i would say that i really wish my neighbors had kept more of their traditions intact because i live in a deep in a holler with my partner dave meesters and our neighbors are Scots-Irish settlers who've been there for a few hundred years. Um, well, in the whole region, in this particular neighborhood, because it is so remote, it wasn't really settled until like a hundred years ago by them. 
um, very steep mountains, not much land to grow food on because it's very dark. <laughs> but, uh, but I will say that they, everybody like has a granny that knew herbs, but there was kind of a severance between that time and the generations of folks in their 60s and 70s now. And it's really heartbreaking. Mm. And I think that part of that, honestly, from what I can see is that when you're told that the thing you don't have access to is better and the real, the good medicine that people with money have, and you already have some level of like class shame, even if you have pride in where you're from and pride in your ability to take care of yourself, there is a way that people, once they got the access, let go of some of the old medicine ways. Yeah. Yeah. It's heartbreaking, but I will say that our neighbors really want to relearn that stuff and are really interested in it. And, um, the old timers especially come to us for support for sure. So I'm hoping that over time there will be a resurgence and in interest in those communities um, instead of just the last few folks leaving with the knowledge they have. Um, but yeah, they definitely were a group. And I will say that's true for a lot of different communities, definitely in the deep South, um, Southern folk medicine, is one that draws heavily from African-American knowledge as well as indigenous knowledge. And that was kept alive and vibrant and is very much a living tradition because all of those cultures come together and continue to keep their medicine ways alive. Um, so yeah, that is very true. This like thing that like the punks were doing when I was very young is like part of a, another tradition, which is also just being able to understand that you can get better care for some things um, in your own community, you know, and that when there's not as much money involved or as much of a sort of like well person, sick person dynamic, then there is some freedom in that and the ability to really teach people to take care of themselves as part of what I think is important for herbalists to do as well. We don't all do that, but transferring the knowledge of medicine making and self-care is part of what our job should be, I think. Um, this is a good example of how I said I was gonna have trouble not talking about one part of the aspect of my staff. <laughs> but, so let me just say that's part one. Mm -hmm. um, well, two, so now I've said two things, growing up here with plant people and that. Uh, but then also as young punks, I also moved out to this land that I tend now with six other people and um, back in the, I don't know, we got the land in like 2000 or something, very undeveloped forest cove. Um, but we moved there partially because we were tired of getting evicted, tired of gentrification and wanted to just have some say, not pay rent. So I won't say that I had like, um, I don't know, there was, <laughs> it was about autonomy, but also just about kind of being on my own more and probably some amount of like, not the healthiest or most, um, What's the word I want to say? I don't know. I'm sure there was some negative type homestead brain I was having because I'm pretty critical of back to the land folks when there's not connection to other communities. Mm -hmm. um, but now, but at the time, I think I probably was missing that reference. Uh, but we wanted just to have autonomy, build our own houses, live off the grid and all of that. And moved happened to move into one of the most amazing plant communities I've ever been in my life deep in ginseng company country like a place that has been logged but is still pretty intact 
Mm. Um, and it's just so ecologically rich and you can't really look around without seeing a handful of medicinal plants in every foot of the property. Wow. It's amazing. Like absolutely amazing stuff that you can't really grow in gardens. Like Pedicularis grows there wild. Oh, wow. Yeah. So much anemone, like really special plants everywhere. And so as we were all like, we all need to figure out how to do things here. Um, Dave and I were like, well, maybe we'll learn the medicine plants. Mm-hmm. Ah. And uh, we were, you know, very opposed to spending money and all of the things. So mm-hmm. uh, we, we, um, we did Michael Moore's on distance learning program with Jen Stovall. Nice. Uh, and sh- we did that when he was still alive, but he was very unavailable. I will say like, he got these DVDs in the mail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> he had to like watch these DVDs. And I don't know if you've ever seen Michael teach, but um, it was like the last time he taught in person before he had to quit for health reasons. And they recorded all of those. And he would just like sit at the desk and talks for like mm-hmm. eight hours, like four days a week or something. Like the people who were in the program just had this capacity you had to, to just deal um, yeah. with that. And it's amazing. But yeah, so we did these videos and which I was grateful I could come and go to them, but I couldn't ask questions. And so that part was kind of missing. And it was not the most embodied practice I ever, that it was more like, here's the A&P, here's the plants. And he's a genius about anatomy and physiology, a genius about the plants and knows them really well. But it's also, um, it's not, it feels more like school and less like an embodied experience for sure. But I didn't have that critique at the time. Right. Anyway, so I'm like, okay, I live in this amazing place. I'm just going to get to know the plants who live here, which is a huge undertaking. (laughs) Yeah. And I set about self-study for a while where I actually went through every plant that could, almost every plant I could identify, I tried to learn the botany of. But through the season, I would go through all these books. I didn't really have the internet there at the time. And I would go through all the books that I had and just like make extensive notes on every herb. And even that was very, I don't know, like school book learning, you know, um, and not so experiential because I had not yet learned to take on that part of the learning. But I learned so much from the plants during that time period, even though I was not tasting them as much or making preparations much at that point. So I will say a huge part of my personal path has been actually living immersed in plant community and tending wild plants and tending gardens there and that that has been given me the stillness and space to really take in knowledge that's not as memorization or just like kind of like getting lectures and taking that in and learning that way Mm -hmm. and then over time Jen and Dave and I all started to think that we were missing some important parts of our school or just the way that we interacted with plants because we were not as embodied in what we were learning. So the three of us really got into working with taste and experience mm. to get the teachings in that way. And the level to which that has transformed my relationship to the practice is huge. And that's what we try to do at our school at Terra Silva, which is getting people to like really learn to track what the, what the plants are doing in their bodies and to be able to um, notice what a plant is doing because of the experience that you get through taste and smell and touch, and then also through tracking. And the way that I think that's part of what's been missing 
so that gap that I talked about from folk traditions to current Western herbalism as it's taught is partially that experience and embodiment because traditionally, if you were gonna become an herbalist, you would apprentice with someone for a very long time. Right. Yeah. Um, and Phyllis Light talks about studying ginseng for seven years. You know, like she studied just with ginseng. And I've met, I met an er another herbalist named Eagle Song Gardener who told me she studied Hawthorne for eight years. Um, and so when I think about these other traditions where you would follow some around, one around for years, go with them on house calls, do their grunt work for them, mm -hmm. like just learn so much directly, but also through personal embodiment and experience and then really close observation of the people you're working with under the guide of a mentor, then I think that a lot of that's just missing. And, and so we go to herb school and we memorize all this stuff. Um, we read our books, we look things up on the internet maybe now, and we don't actually learn to, to really tap into that deep well of knowing that was how herbalism existed for thousands of years, which is direct experience of the plants. Right. Mm. It's almost like herb school is more of like an initiation. I, I felt that way the same the same way with like permaculture because take sure. my permaculture des design course it's only like two weeks but you get yes. you get introduced to all these things but right. it takes a lifetime of working with the plants with the land to uh really have that expertise mm -hmm. to be a true you know doctor in the old sense yeah that's true. And I do think, you know, I think my students right now probably would definitely agree they're going through an initiatory experience. I think we're, they're, everyone's very overwhelmed. Um, but I think that that is true. Like the, the permission virtual design course is a good example because it is like so intense while it's happening. And then when you're actually applying that in real life, you're like, wow, I actually need to watch where the water goes. I need to watch what's happening in this type of soil. You know, like what are the different microclimates in my garden? And that's something that's just going to be much more apparent when you're in it you know when your body's in it and you're paying attention for sure yeah and when there's more skin in the game yeah right and yeah. it's not just all like you know abstract theoretical yeah yeah that's true and both fields i feel like a lot of people might go through the trainings and not apply them even ever you know yeah mm -hmm. yeah that's and you know, that's fine for some people you know it's, sure. it's a way of ex exploring but to be a true, you know, true healer <laughs> takes a, a long time. Mm -hmm. So could you tell us a little bit about your school and how it, how it developed? Sure. Yeah. Um, so Dave and Jen and I are old friends and uh, Dave and I both lived in New Orleans for a while. She still lives there, but she also has ties to North Georgia where her grandparents lived. And so that's a similar climate and ecosystem is here, same type of bioregion. So, I mean, we're pretty much part of Katua, I think as well. But because we had connections to those places and we also saw a need for sort of a new generation of herb teachers to come along who were going to address some of the larger systems and who were going to access both that desire for autonomy that people have who are interested in herbalism, but also, um, kind of meeting more of the radical potential for the field. And what I mean by that is that with an actual critique of what is making people sick, if we're actually trying to go to the root cause, then that means that we actually have to look at the societal frameworks that are harming us. 
Mm-hmm. And so within that, I mean, you know, racism, sexism, capitalism, every, all, all of the isms. Um, well, maybe not all of them. I Industrial guess. civilization. <laughs> Industrial in civilization. Yeah. Empire, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, all of the things um, that and how they impact our health. And then if we're not at least discussing that, then we're putting all of the weights of health and wellness on the individual, which is to reinforce this pattern of, well, I think one of the things that's wrong with Western culture, which is that it's all about the individual and not about the society or the community. So within that, you know, you're just being like, all right, here's the stuff you need to do. Here's some life changes. Here's some direction. Good luck. You know, and it doesn't mean we don't have a place for that, but at the same time, at least acknowledging here are the factors that are impacting your health and to also be helping students think of ways to address those issues as well. You know, so how could herbalism also be used to support people who are doing the work of transformation and really fighting for change in our culture? While at the same time also acknowledging the pretty complicated and well, I would even say like complicity in the system that herbalism has. So we have a culture of herbalism on this continent that definitely draws very heavily from indigenous roots and also from African-American traditions, but doesn't always acknowledge those debts. And also it's usually the white folks who make money off of this if they do. Mm -hmm. Um, So how can we also address the harm done and rework models to do better? And I think that we saw the need for a lot of those things and also really wanted to create a school that taught embodied practice and taught people to go back to learn to be in their bodies and to experience the plants and to experience the medicines and then be able to help their communities from direct experience. And those are tools you can use your whole life, whether or not you end up actually having a clinical practice just to be able to learn to be in those relationships with plants. And sorry, go ahead. You guys- How do you teach students um, to have an embodied practice? Right. Well, we do a lot. It's been challenging since COVID, I will say that. But yeah, we do a lot of tea tastings um, and tasting the plants and and discussing what the feeling is in the body. And we encourage people to do that. We have some assignments that we do where we have people dive deep with one herb a month for a few months and then report back on their experience over time working with that single herb. And we put a lot of emphasis on the taste and energetics. So like the hot, cold, moist, dry uh, part of herbs and part of the body and how those interact. And I will say it's still, it's an uphill battle. And some people it's interesting because we're, this culture is so, we emphasize the mind so much. Um, and, and that split between the mind and the body that is not real, but is constantly reinforced. It's very hard to try to get past that, you know? And as someone who is pretty cerebral, I can say that learning to realize that there's such importance in the body's wisdom and that experience is something that I just try to be really patient with people about because it was quite challenging for me to learn that way. Mm. So some people just like immediately get into it and can be like, "Mm, this herb tastes kind of stimulating. I can feel it in my lungs. I also feel it here. You know, like they can really immediately just tap into that wisdom like like they're riding a bike that they already knew how to ride or something. 
but for some folks it's really challenging to learn those ways of knowing and observing and so we just try to give people a lot of practice with that mm-hmm. and give people the skills so that they can do that on their own um, as much as we can and also just by like taking the time to talk about the body and the body in society and the relationship to that and so that means we spend some time discussing you know disordered eating and how asking people to pay attention to food allergies is challenging or we talk about fat phobia and we talk about the ways that people can just have trouble even wanting to be in their bodies because of because of gender dysphoria and so i think actually spending time on all these different ways that the body is disciplined and um I don't know, in this culture, we just denigrate the body at the same time as we elevate perfect bodies of a certain kind, you know? So being able to have the harder conversations and make space about why it can be challenging for people to even drop in is part of the space that we're making. But a lot of it is just in sharing those skills, yeah. like, which I think are the, that's the foundation of plant medicine for thousands of years was learning how to do all that, you know? Yeah, it's like a different... Uh way of using your senses mm-hmm. like like in, in this culture a lot of people are just like floating heads yes and they're disconnected from feeling in general mm-hmm. but yeah getting being able to notice those subtle like what it, what, what is spicy you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> what's it doing to my body how does it make me like my blood feel uh-huh <laughs> yeah that's yeah. very useful dropping from the head to the body to the heart too when you're in a school, you're often, like you said, very cerebral, like study mode thinking. And I think that makes so much sense, like at an herb school to really practice the other types of knowing ways of knowing. So that's really cool. If I was, if I was in the Asheville area, I would have definitely, I yeah. would want to go to your school. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's been challenging, you know, we're doing it online right now and um, we're and trying to get those pieces in there still, but we do, but it is challenging. I mean, we do a lot of like tea tasting on Zoom, which feels good, but also just try to get them to do the exercises on their own. Um, and I think it, even if people don't have all of the time for that they would like to have in their lives for that, those kinds of like slow embodied learnings, I think just suggesting that to people is important and mm-hmm. modeling it as well, you know, just to be like, this is one of the ways we learn and it's important too. For sure. Yeah, that's really cool. So um, one of the terms that seems important in your school and in your work is vitalism. Mm-hmm. If you could give our listeners a little bit of a introduction on to what vitalism is. Sure. You know, it's a, what's my, what's my quickest definition of that? I would, so vitalism is the idea that all of life has a force which in vitalism is called the vital force, but um, a force that wants to live and grow and that moves toward growth and healing. And on the, when you move past the individual to communities and plant communities, people communities, then also they're gonna move towards complexity and strong connections. So as an individual, every living being moves towards growth and life and health if unimpeded. 
but they're, we're all in community, right? So there, we will also be moving towards complexity and connection. And sometimes other individual members of that needs might be different to our own health, you know? So we could be, you know, bacteria want to live on a plant and they have to work that out in different ways. But generally most of us live in, I don't want to call it harmony, but we live in community as individuals working together and sometimes um, with, a with a force that we all combine to make, but definitely as individuals, we have a vital force that moves towards healing and growth generally when unimpeded. And then vitalism, there are philosophical vitalisms as well, which I'm not going to get into that, but as far as like the health paradigm of vitalism, there is also the idea that when there is a problem with your health, there's an obstacle to cure because your body wants to move towards health. And I would say that's true in the garden as well. So if your plant is suffering in the garden, what is the obstacle to its growth and its health? There's a lot of critique right now around the word cure. And so I just wanna say, right now because some people have different health conditions that there's not they're not going to ever be completely over you know that's just going to be something that they accept whether that's a chronic pain or different kinds of ability but the way that we think about obstacle to cure is more about like what is impeding growth and health and cure is more of a spectrum instead of an end goal so what would improve quality of life and what can what kind of blocks and obstacles can we remove or help move out of the way or at least palliate so that you can go with your body's vital force to improve quality of life. So basically the body wants to move towards healing and how can we support that flow? Cool. Very cool. Is there a difference with vitalism and, and radical vitalism? Like what does radical vitalism mean to you? Yes. Um, so radical vitalism is the name of my blog that I have with Dave Meesters and it's also my that our personal Instagram account. I have way too many Instagram accounts right now, but um, but that's where we share those feelings, and some of that comes into the school as well. But radical vitalism is moving past the individual because, oof, I need to actually get to that as it applies to COVID in a moment. But um, radical vitalism is the idea that yes, life moves towards health and connection, but that we're not islands and none of us is alone. And each of our health, individual health depends on that of others. And so this is where we acknowledge that the health of our families, our communities, our friend groups, our networks, our society, and our environment. So the more than human can around us are all going to impact our health. We are not just living in a vacuum, each of us, and some of the obstacles of secure can actually be systemic. So the obstacle secure might be systemic racism. It might be inability to access good food or food that's nourishing for you. It could be living in a place where the only food for an hour away is a convenience store. Um, it could be environmental toxins in the soil where you're trying to grow your food in your backyard. So obstacles to cure, or if you want to not use that word to say obstacles to health or wellness would be much more systemic and less located just in the individual. And the idea is that we need to be actually, if we're going to 
work holistically, which means to look at the whole and to look to the root cause and see the person and not the disease, then we need to expand out from the person to the larger frameworks as well. And if we are not also working to dismantle white supremacy, to work for better lives for queer and trans folks, if we're not acknowledging the harm of settler colonial capitalism on the world and the plant communities and animal communities around us as well, then we're gonna just be doing like the most basic form of harm reduction. And a lot of herbalism is just gonna be harm reduction anyway, because while we are dismantling these systems, we're only gonna be able to do so much to remove these obstacles to wellness. So radical vitalism is changing and panning out from the individual to the larger structures. Very cool. Right, so where's the, for, for me, I, I, I in, in my uh, time of trying to change the world and myself, um, <laughs> there's always a line of where you have control and where you don't have control. Mm. Yeah. And that, the, like the serenity prayer uh, is, I, I, I find that very helpful because mm -hmm. there are, is a lot that we can't control and sometimes, uh, trying to devitalizes us or puts an off, like, right. puts us so, out of balance. yeah, where's the, where's the balance point, uh, for, for you? Yeah, that's tough. I mean, I will say that more and more because our school attracts folks who are interested in, in these questions, um, you know, we do a lot of work around grief and acknowledgement of just like how hard it is. Everyone exists in a state of burnout from trying to change the world, you know, and it can be very hard to care for ourselves at all, much less other people. Um, and I would say within that, like, you know, as my clinical practice goes on and just from my experience working with young people that people are getting chronic stress related illnesses that are pretty debilitating and may last the rest of their lives younger and younger. Oh. And I'm seeing people with immune issues that they are developing in their early twenties that I used to not see people get till they were middle-aged. Wow. Um, and so what I, what I'm saying from that is like, that's a hard thing to see and I'm seeing it a lot. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but I really think a lot of it is stress and, and part of it is holding that tension and those contradictions of like, how can I wanna change it all? Understand that that's what is making us all so sick. Mm. Grieve for the massive rates of extinction, mm. and damage that's happening. Grieve in solidarity with people around the world who are living in, under such conditions of violence um, while still trying to not be completely taken out with the grief and sorrow of that, right? Or burn out. And I think that that's really, really challenging. And personally, what I will say is I've been through a very long process with this. And um, I have to admit that I think that living in close connection with the forest has been really helpful for me because there is a deep time. And by deep time, I mean ecological time. Yeah. Lesson that I get from being in the forest. But I think you can get that other places too that is these you know these trees are older than me some of them most of them i think at this point are somewhat older than me um but 
of the big ones, but um, the mountains sure are older than you. Mountains are much older than me, and also you know there's some fungal fungal networks that are older than me out there, and honestly, there's some blue cohosh I've dug up that are older than me. I mean, like really, there are the system is old. It was once a pasture, and it's a ginseng cove now. You know, and so. I can feel that in the deep time story, there, we, you know, that there will be change and there will be some healing. Now, I want to also say that I see a lot of people use the bigger story of, say, vitalism on a global scale to downplay what we're going through right now and to say the earth will heal itself, everything will be fine. I do not want to go to that level of the deep time story because I actually think that we need to acknowledge the harm being done and that has been done under the brutal reality of empire. And that if we don't acknowledge that, then we're even more complicit than we might already be in the story. But I will say that that connection with the more than human world and the spending time with plants and animals, with other humans, is part of what I find to be grounding and healing. And also I would say that there's a way that really, I went way into depth into reading about the extinction crisis a few years ago. Um, actually it's probably been more than a few years now, this last year, it feels like five years, so I don't know. Right. But um, a while ago, I went really deep into it. Like I was actually by myself on the mountain for about a month and a half a few years ago and I just read everything I could get my hands on that had to do with extinction and the ecological catastrophe and climate chaos and everything and I actually have to say that I came out of it with not despair but resolve deep resolve and imperative like there is a this is the fight and there's a lot of different parts of the fight but the fight to try to stop what's happening and to preserve what life we can is part of what we need to be doing. And so how do we maintain our own health and wellness while facing the level of harm that's happening is a really big question. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely something that I think is going to be different from everyone. But I think that we need to really learn to rest. Mm -hmm. We need to learn to feel pleasure and spend time on that too. And to remember that it's at least as important that we be live creating the world we want to live in and honoring the life we have now as it is to be critiquing and tearing down. Mm. So that is key to me. And that's another part of the embodiment part. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, yeah from my perspective, at, at least, and I, I personally think it's more important to work on what you want right. to create than what you want to destroy. But right. that's just, you know, that's my perspective. So what do you see as herbalists role in these changing times? Well, yeah, so there's a couple of things there. Um, I, I think that I, pers I don't want to be like an apocalyptic person <laughs> and saying that like the end is nigh because I know there have been many times that people have thought that. However, I will say that we are going to be facing increasing era and eras of, of more and more disruption because of the climate situation. Like we're past the tipping point. 
there's no going back. Um, we can try to prepare for that and be as adaptive as possible, but we're not, yeah, there's not going to be the warnings that were put out in the seventies. We're way past being able to get back to that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so there's some level of acceptance we have to have around that and preparedness. And within that, I think that there is going to be increasing crumbling of empire within the face of that. And that's good and bad. There's mostly good for empire to crumble, but there will be supply chain disruption. There will be yeah. scarcity. There right. will be pro times where we really will have, some people are going to be struggling very hard. And you can see like in places where there's already been a lot of climate unrest, like in Syria, which largely is a civil war that came, started with drought. Mm-hmm there will be increasing times of war and conflict as well. And so, and lots of climate migration is gonna be happening. Mm -hmm. And I say all of that just to say that uh, we need to be ready and prepared for all kinds of supply networks to go down. And when I, I say that, I don't wanna sound like I'm just like a prepper on the side of the mountain, but what I mean is the more that we can at the same time be building more resilient networks of care, in the face of that really just like inevitable situation. Like, mm -hmm. and I don't think that's our last pandemic in my lifetime as well. Of course not. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so what are our networks of care that we can build together? And I think herbalists have a really important place there, which mm -hmm. is uh, we need to learn as much as we can about caring for people in all kinds of conditions, even if they have no access to medical care, mm -hmm. biomedical yeah. care, that is, and we need to really learn the plants around us. And then I think we also need to be gardening and growing for climate change. So growing yeah. as many kinds of things as, as you can in your bioregion and understand that your bioregion is shifting and changing and that is inevitable. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And that's something that I'm definitely trying to do too. Because we're really in a cold area in New York. Mm. But like we I'm growing the most cold hardy, hardy plants I can but also like persimmons and pawpaws and stuff that's just on the edge because who knows what's going to be going on in 10 15 years yes and yeah like there might not be sugar maples here anymore I don't know I know the sugar maple thing is really heartbreaking I'm so sorry for you guys um <laughs> We're dealing with the ash, the ash loss right now here. Oh, I know. That's so hard too. We still have ash. It's, yeah. it's, I, I don't know how long that's going to last either. In Western Pennsylvania, there aren't any, but up here in New York, there's still some. Yeah. It's yeah. It's definitely changing fast. And um, with what you said about the supply chain, you know, is definitely something that people I think can relate to. And it doesn't sound like you're a prepper on the mountain after COVID when people couldn't get herbs or food or um supplies or toilet paper you know or like lumbers you know a million dollars yeah so it's it's happening now and it's not going to be um getting any easier so i think that's a really good point too and i loved seeing how the herbalists really rallied and all mm -hmm. of the people who were posting like i need these herbs for this care kit and they would get it you know like people are like going through their herb bins and sending out things. And I think you're right that herbalists really do have, um, we're, we're like starting to prepare yes. in that way already, um, as far as supplies go. So it's about like building 
community building connections and adapting. Mm. Yes, for sure. And I think that what we're going to be seeing in the future as a society is just like more and more decentralization, you know, that, um, which has good parts, has a lot of good parts to it. Um, But yes, that we need to like think of ourselves as a network as much as possible. Um, And we can subvert the settler mindset of the prepper by thinking of it as community preparation, you know, Mm -hmm. and that we, we want to have as many people with some skills to care for each other with plants as possible. And we need to share resources, you know, and I will say that my, my neighborhood where I live, that's got the Scots Irish settlers that it's a pretty harsh place to live in in the winter, especially. Um, And they grow a lot of their own food and they, they exhibit more just like mutual aid is everyday life in any community I've ever been part of for sure. Yeah. So like if someone has a heart attack, the whole neighborhood comes over and puts up his firewood for the winter and yeah. everybody yeah. brings canned goods over and people care for each other. And interestingly, when I was speaking earlier about the biomedical access changing the culture somewhat until maybe like, I don't know, 35, 40 years ago, everyone was delivered at home with a home birth. Mm. And almost anyone I talk to who's older than that, I can be like, where were you born? And they'll be like, in this house, right where I live now, across the street, like, and they'll tell me who, who delivered them. And what's interesting within that is that they name people. And it's really clear that there was never like one midwife for the whole holler, mm-hmm. that there was maybe four or five people, usually women, um, at the time who would know how to do that. It was just like another skill set you could have. Mm-hmm. And while, you know, it's great to have people who are specialized, there was just a way that there was a more diffuse network of people who knew how to deliver babies. And so they would be like, so-and-so delivered me, so-and-so delivered my son, you know, and it's like different people doing that. And I think about how ideally, maybe communities would have multiple people who know how to work with plant medicine and who have different skill sets within that. And that it wouldn't be like the specialist expert person, you know? Yeah. It seems like our contemporary society just focuses so much on specialization. Yes. Um, Like generalization is actually maybe better for the coming future or (laughs) the current future (laughs) um, because it makes you more adaptable too. You have the, jack of all trades master of a few mm-hmm. uh, is can be very, very useful in a this 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 kind of situation and i i see that dynamic with our amish neighbors too like they're oh, yeah. very tight-knit community they're they're very communal like their identity is based on their community and they help each other out with everything whether it's like you know raising a barn or um, you know health needs or whatever yeah, yeah everything like everything mm-hmm. yeah. but yeah there's obviously you know some issues too but there's a lot that um anarchists could learn from them for instance oh for sure <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah but, i think about that a lot i think about that a lot with my community that i mean the neighbors that have accepted us but we're still pretty weird to them <laughs> yeah. um but i will say that i think about all of the time of the lessons that i learned from them uh about sharing and take and just thinking of other people's needs and helping. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and helping people, like, I think also in like this social media dominated world right now, we're so now so used to 
interacting with people via Facebook and Instagram. And that person to person contact is, is like not as, um, it's not it, it, that that skill is is like lost, and I think that might have something to do with a lot of the the young kids developing these stress. Yeah, the internet. But but we we're so focused on like people's what they believe mm-hmm. and how they're different than us in their belief structures or whatever. But we're like living in this neighborhood. There's all sorts of people with a lot of different beliefs who can interact with yes a person to person, and that's really what a community is too. Is like. Uh, caring for people and helping people and being helped by people, whether or not you, know, you believe the same things that they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I definitely agree with that. I was actually just at a family reunion with, for my, with my mom yesterday in a tiny town in Appalachia too. Um, and definitely was around a lot of folks who I do not agree with about politics at all or many things but there was so much common ground on just like ways to live and gardening and food stuff that it was really awesome to talk to them but I was also thinking about how um you know I'm wondering you know if there's a way that we can come not identify totally with what we believe in and need to be around people like us but also work to create more rural spaces that are safe for all kinds of people you know and I was thinking like if I was like visibly queer to them what would my life look like at that family reunion and um, definitely realizing that in rural spaces, it's a lot easier to say like, we can get past all this for people who are all white Mm. um, than it is for people who are not. And just as someone who lives in a really rural place and has all kinds of people visit and study with me and live with me at times, like just seeing the different levels of stress different kinds of people have in rural environments is something that we're gonna have to be working on. So- how can we create spaces and work to make things safer in rural areas? Yeah. And there's this vicious kind of cycle that happens with the rural rural areas too, where all of the different kids move to the cities because the rural environment isn't, you know, conducive to expression of their truest self. And there's nobody out, you know, so it's, it's really kind of hard. Mm -hmm. I know. I mean, that part is just, it's super challenging, you know, and like here in Southern Appalachia, there's a lot of sundown towns that until very recently that you were, it was not safe to be a person of color here. Mm. Um, and so I think that we just have to be like facing that history and also trying to change the culture in our neighborhoods, at least enough that there are places where all kinds of people can go. Um, and especially if we're looking at a place where there's going to be system collapse of very various kinds we cannot have a situation where the people in the country are not are going to be hostile to people from urban areas coming into them because that i mean that's going to be happening and how do we face that i guess it's more yeah. yeah yeah well i mean i i i'm i you know i i live in the country and it i mean it seems to me like a lot of city people are really trying their best to uh alienate mm-hmm rural people and they, they're they're I mean I think that social media has done a lot about this too but right it's really hard a to... lot of division just with, sure you know, online. well it's also yeah. like well it depends about around class difference right so yeah, yeah. that's really what it comes into <laughs> yeah. about class I mean if it's yeah. if there are people who are alienating moving from the cities it tends to be around class lines so, and it's more of a force of gentrification you know yeah um, like, we're just outside of the the orbit of new york city but like if you go like half an hour hour you know closer like people have all their their second homes or their third homes or Mm -hmm. 
they're buying up real estate that they can flip it. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's, that's a big difference from like when, um, I ha I let people have a gathering at my space. That's only queer and trans folks or folks of color, you know? Um, and what I can picture is a time, you know, everyone, not everyone, but there's a lot of people who are doing land back uh, exercises are trying to get land into indigenous hands or into the hands of black folks mm -hmm. and um part of what the challenge of that is in some areas is like is it safe to do that for yeah. them like how do we create places where if we are working to get land back to people in reparations type situations it's actually a safe place for them to live their dream you know yeah it but there's also this idea that all rural people are racist sure. hicks. Yeah. And, and, and that's, I mean, that's kind of a classist uh, viewpoint right. too, that really, I think harms, harms people. And, right. and uh, I, I, like living out in the country, like most, I, it seems like most people don't really care. There are people who do, um, but you can find like, going in the suburbs you could find as many racist sure. people <laughs> as out in the country sure for sure i mean i totally agree with what you're saying and at the same time you know part of the work that we do out here is about is anti-racist organizing um for in the rural areas we're in and so far there's not been a lot of white supremacist organizing in this specific county but right one county over there is you know and so um i think that if we aren't careful during the time of instability that's coming on, um, the, there may be people organizing and providing mutual aid who are actually white supremacists. And that's happening in Oregon a lot already from what I understand. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so there are stereotypes about rural folks. Some of them have some truth to them. And also there are places where there's active organizing happening that you really got to keep an eye on that as well. And that might not be something you see as much where you live, but we have to be pretty careful in Southern Appalachia because there is definitely a history of that. And there are people who are currently, well, try, kind of identifying places that are already like whiter than other parts of the country and trying to seize those as territory. Mm, yeah. um, it's super creepy. Yes, it's very creepy, but it's definitely <laughs> happening and it's real. I mean, and that's like something I just want to name that I, definitely in East Tennessee, there is a couple strongholds that people are working on. Wow. So just to say that, like as a, um, you know, <laughs> from, from here on the ground, there's some reality around that that we have to be sure. thinking about. Yeah, for sure. So I guess I would really love to talk to you about, um, some of your books that you've written and the, mm -hmm. the expertise that you have around focus around like mental health and helping people move through like the fear of living in a rural area yeah. or the grief that comes with like, you know, your land um, or not having land, you know, mm -hmm. or whatever, whatever it is that people are moving through. Um, so my first question is, um, what inspired you to write your books, Ease Your Mind and Under Pressure, Herbs for Resilience, yeah. first of all? Sure. Um, I lived, so I lived in New Orleans before and after Hurricane Katrina. And I was starting to go to herb school and study herb stuff at that point, well, Michael Moore school. But I had not really 
gone deeply into it at that point. Um, and so I would live down there like September to May every year. And then was, so I was there before and after this, the storm. And the few years after the storm uh, were really intense. Mm-hmm. You know, it was very nice at first. I think I, I was writing about this recently on Instagram, but um, at the beginning, we came back from the storm. People were just happy to be alive, happy to see mm-hmm. each other. And then the trauma set in and you have to deal with survivor guilt because you lived through it. And also you see the city being completely restructured and remade uh, yeah. and along the lines of disaster capitalist ideals. So, you know, they fire, they basically completely fire all the public school teachers immediately and rework the schools to be privatized. And yeah. um, the developers start just buying up the land. They won't let people come back that have been evacuated. Like it was really heartbreaking. And within that, it became also the army was there it was like under siege you felt like you were living in occupied territory and um but also there was just a lot of grief and trauma to process and so there was a lot of death on top of the death that had gone on during the storm and the aftermath of the storm and so we lost a lot of people to suicide to overdose there were freak accidents that you can't really explain that new orleans is known for and <laughs> Um, just so much death mm-hmm. and sorrow. And I just wasn't, I was studying, but I didn't really have a regular herbal practice as taking my own herbs very much. Honestly, I was definitely in the like, oh yeah, that might be a good idea, but not doing it. Um, and I came, so in 2008, I moved up to the land full time because our house was done and I thought I'd just get better and be better emotionally, be more stable. Cause I was having a pretty hard time and I didn't not get better <laughs> I was I think I I've heard then I had guilt around living in the forest with clean water and not having stress all the time yeah for sure <laughs> I had that I totally know what that's about yeah yeah so I have that guilt as well and then I um I just like was suffering and and full and pretty much not able to do much of the work in the world I wanted to be doing and I started you know I was starting to study the plants and more earnestly and deeper. And I just was like, why am I not working on this for herbs with herbs? And I had, um, I started looking stuff up and trying to find things out that way. And it was very challenging to figure out which herbs I should be using because it would be like, you know, passion flower for 50 things. One of which is anxiety, like what kind of anxiety or what does it do? You know, like there was just not a great condensed place to look at all of the different herbs for different patterns and within that I just think started thinking I needed to compile a resource with what I was learning and I will say the herbs absolutely 100% helped me up and out of that situation I also had to I eventually had a round of somatic therapy which helped as well but I couldn't even get to the point to go get help Mm. I had some herbal help Mm -hmm. Um, so I made easier mind partially to just collect all of my studies and findings and put them together in a way that would be easy for people who are not herbalists or plant people to use. So they're arranged by symptom there, uh, which is more like, so it'll be like, here's all the, a list of herbs for, the depre- for depression with a list of, of how they work and on, on kind of kinds of depression. Um, and so that went that way and has been a really good resource and continues to help a lot of people as well. And definitely my core 
demographic that I wanted to be able to use it, which would be people who never use herbs, still use that and get a lot of help from it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where that came from. And then moving through the shit show of life that has been since 2008, where it's just like acceleration of disaster and whatever, one thing after another, not personally, but in the world. Yeah. Um, then, and I think like coming out, gosh, I don't even remember when I actually put out under pressure, but I'm pretty sure it was post 2016. Um, but my friend Roger and I were talking about who does the block prints and it, Roger Pete, we're talking about just trying to give out a resource that would be more specific for ongoing stress. And so under pressure, which is more about supporting resilience in the face of never ending stress <laughs> is what that resource became. And so it's more of a deeper look at 12 different plants. And um, so it's a little bit more in depth into those plants. And it's more like you read about it and just see if you see yourself and what I'm saying about that plant or what the plant is saying. Mm. Um, So those are the way they are arranged. I mean, I'm currently fantasizing about when, whenever I have time, which is kind of a joke right now, but I, would love to put out, I've been developing this framework of herbs for mental health. It's all using the tissue state model to look at the energetics of mental health and applying that in a way that is helpful for people. Because now that I'm teaching more embodied herbalism and I teach this energetic framework for mental health at our school, but I'm seeing some of the limitations of the work I've put out in the past, which is that, you know, when you say the word anxiety, that could mean like, paralyzed in bed, not able to function, or it could mean um, actually like frenetic, very nervous, agitated, Mm. overly stimulated. There's a really wide range that each of these names can present. Like, so Mm -hmm. the fact that is, I think it's important for us and we're more able to help people if we can narrow down that presentation and say like, actually stagnant depression looks like this. And what are the herbs for that? And they're very different from other ones. And so I'm hoping to carve out some time at some point to do something that's more about looking at all of the different mental states more energetically and not um, not being so tied by the biomedical diagnoses, you know? Yeah, that sounds like a really awesome winter project, but <laughs> I hope <laughs> I hope you do do that. Yeah, we'll see. It's so yeah. hard to make time for things. I know. I hope. So do you think you can tell us and our listeners a little bit about stress and the physiology of stress and yes. um, maybe some herbs that can be helpful? Yes, I can for sure. See. So, so when you study stress, uh, like the, so there's maybe people don't know this. There is a science of stress. <laughs> I think people study stress there's researchers whose whole work is on stress and all manner of terrible things are done to animals to study just stress. But what we know from some of that study is that when we are in, okay, let me do a brief discussion of the autonomic nervous system. The autonomic nervous system is a part of your body that just regulates all the basically all the body functions, but one of the things that regulates is the stress response, but also the rest response. So when you hear the word sympathetic nervous system and parasympathetic nervous system, those are parts of the autonomic system. The sympathetic nervous system is what, when most activated, we call the fight or flight or freeze response. And the parasympathetic system, which is what's more 
in the forefront in the evenings or when um, we're sleeping is the rest and digest response. So we're always moving back and forth between those systems and they dance together to move us through our lives. Within stress theory, <laughs> they, they've noticed that there's this really strong correlation between stress and so many health conditions that are prevalent in the culture we live in today. Uh, so like heart, high blood pressure, heart disease, type two diabetes, like there's a ton of conditions that are almost epidemic that seem to be tied to stress. And so the stress theorists are like, well, this is because this sympathetic response that we have, this activation is actually was appropriate when we were like running from cave bears, but it's not appropriate anymore. And um, so we're just kind of overbuilt for life, which is just so wild. I mean, like now that we know that actually hunter gatherers have pretty cool lives and with a lot of time for leisure. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's just so absurd that they can write whole books about this. Like why zebras don't get ulcers um, that are just like, yeah, we're just overbuilt lives. We don't, we shouldn't have to run from these papers. Um, so we don't, we have this overreaction of the system that makes us stressed out and these health conditions are related to our body's overreaction. Okay. So talk about like switching, like totally getting wrong what's going on, which is that actually we live in an incredibly stressful world, more stressful than when you just had to run for predators sometimes. Um, if that even happened to everybody all the time, I don't know, but that we actually live in a world that's incredibly stressful and anyone who is able to theorize that they, that people don't have to run to their lives anymore is also hopelessly out of touch um diet if you think that uh that is something that nobody still uses then you obviously have never been a woman or femme person walking down the street at night in a city you've never you've never been a black person pulled over by a policeman for a traffic violation or not for in, for another for no reason you're not uh, a trans person walking through an area where there are a lot of hate crimes you know so this idea that none of us still needs to get the fuck out of a situation is so bizarre for sure <laughs> um so there's that problem so that aside um i will say that we are activated a lot of the time right now and yeah sure sometimes it might actually just be traffic or um you know, something going wrong at the coffee shop or something like, I don't know, whatever, like something that you might think should not be that stressful, but hey, traffic is stressful for one thing. But we are constantly under stress. We're constantly in sympathetic activation. And a lot of us don't ever get to move through that and actually feel calm and restful because we have these really intense lives where there's this, this emphasis on productivity. We all have to work too much. And, and there's all the stress of just living in this world. When you're in sympathetic activation mode, it is built to prioritize activity and alertness. And so your digestion gets turned off, your immune system gets turned off. Everything in the body that can be converted into um, sugar will be. So like your liver is going to actually make more, put more sugar into the system. So people's blood sugar goes up. So you have access to more energy and living in a place where your digestive system and your immune system is turned off and you have extra sugar in the blood all the time is setting you up for all these long-term health conditions. And also 
it means that when you're not turning off the sympathetic response much, uh, then you don't get time to rest and digest and restore. And what happens over time is that you get immune dysregulation, you get immune deficiency, you get long-term digestive issues. You can develop blood sugar issues, including type two diabetes. There's so many things that can happen. And when I see people at younger, younger ages getting these pretty intense autoimmune conditions um, or developing digestive patterns that I associate with older folks, then I think it is the, the onslaught of stress that people are living with for so long. And so what our culture is doing to us now at an even ex more accelerated rate is just keeping us in sympathetic activation even more than it was 20 years ago when a lot of the stress literature was written. And I think that we do that partially to ourselves through our phones and getting constant news of terrible things all of the time. Yeah. Um, you know, and so I, digital health is definitely part of the stuff we should be thinking about. Um, but there's some parts we don't have a lot of control over. Like who wants five jobs to live? Right. Yeah. Um, so I see just people getting worn out and burned out. And if you're also trying to organize or work for change on top of whatever the hell else you're doing with your life, mm -hmm. then it's really a lot, you know? So for one thing, I highly recommend restorative practices and actually trying to learn to take care of our bodies, you know, which is like a big part of herbalism. But within that, there are some herbs that I find pretty helpful along the way. Um, and, I, and I think it's important to remember that the same herbs don't work for everyone, but there are a few things that we can know. Um, I really like milky oats for a lot of people, but especially people who run drier. I found that some people who are, tend to be like wetter and juicier, whatever you wanna call that way of presenting, don't always do as well with oats. Um, but for people who are drier and tend to have issues around dryness, which is atrophy in the tissue state system, then those folks often are really improved, with, have an improvement in their stress levels or actually the impact of the stress. Um, from milky oats, for sure. I love that one a lot. Um, that's actually not an herb I take very much because I don't have that dry body type, but it is really helpful for people who do. Um, and I would say also that one thing that is just a sad facet of the stressful life that we live in is that it exacerbates our stress levels because our bodies get worn out and frazzled and we become really reactive and when we're really reactive, then we can often create more stress for ourselves. So if I bite your head off because I had a hard day, then I have to process that. Or, you know, yeah. if I'm, <laughs> so, you true. Know, so we, we also like getting these like snowball patterns of just like, great, well, now I have to like spend a while fixing this personal situation that just happened or whatever. So definitely I would say milky oats are going to be great for some people. Ashwagandha is really helpful for that reactive element as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I definitely, that they're also more for dry folks and I, they're a little bit warming ashwagandha. And so I like to put them with, with more moistening herbs. So either, um, and cooling herbs. So putting them with something that's like, uh, shatavari or with oats can be nice just to balance out the warm, dry part. Um, so ashwagandha for sure. And then I think that maybe the herb that I recommend more than any other herb for all of this is Hawthorne. 
Yes. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And that's because they're really nourishing, but also they are really helpful for helping us balance how much we want to take in. You know, I think a lot of us are just saturated and full of bad news and stress and we soak up everybody's stuff, you know, all of the emotions and, and hard times that we're, that we're hearing about. Um, and when you're saturated, then it can be really hard to receive nourishment and to see beauty in life. And so there's a way that I love Hawthorne because they help us continue to feel deeply, but without being so overwhelmed by it, you know, and Oh yeah. The protection. That's yeah. The protection part is huge. And I think that, um, you know, something I teach my students a lot and talk about a lot in general is just that a lot of the mental states that we identify with, we can sometimes become too attached to and hold on to. And one of them is being like a really deep feeler. Like some people identify as an empath. I don't usually use that word, but I would say that a lot of us feel deeply and are very affected by the world. Right. And we can be very judgmental of people who are not affected by the world. You know, I'm like, well, if you don't feel crazy right now or feel like things are really bad, then there's something wrong with you, you know? And so there can be this badge of pride we have by feeling really strongly and, and being so affected. And uh, we can become very attached to our grief and yeah. our pain. And that there's a lot of issues with that because the, but the main one I would say is that we have a responsibility to try to address the harm that's being done. And we have a responsibility to care for the more than human world and develop those connections and to remember what it is to be human in this world. Mm -hmm. And if we are debilitated by our deep feeling, then we are not able to step up to that responsibility. So Hawthorne, I love because they don't, make it so you don't feel things they just make it so you're not as overwhelmed and so mm -hmm. Hawthorne the thing that I always tell my students is that they help us become a little bit thicker skinned without making us callous that's really yeah I can totally resonate with that with Hawthorne yeah and so they're definitely one that I that I would recommend for a lot of people and a lot of us just need more brighteners in our life so all the herbs that are just uplifting and brightening so that would be more like rose Hypericum uh, for some people and not for everyone, but the brighteners, the brighteners are definitely ones and a lot of those aromatic mints are brightening. Yes, yeah, Tulsi so, definitely has a brightener. Yeah, Tulsi yeah. <laughs> first, uh, Garden Sage, I like for that too. So the brighteners should come in here as well. We need brightening for sure. Peach, peach is one that really helps with grief and for helping just like help us remember sweetness. Sometimes we need to be reminded of the sweetness in the world and, and they really help with that peach as in the leaf, right? I use the leaf mostly. I use the flowers for elixir if I have them, but I don't always have them. Um, yeah, the bark is more deeply sedative, but I do like the leaf just for sort of cooling agitated states, but also there is a sweetness there, I think. And I, I love peach fruit too. I think that uh, they're underused as medicine as well. Yeah, there's just something about that like dripping juice, yeah. like going down your chin, down your body and like yes. this like youthful joy. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That I, I love that. And I think if you ever like harvest peach flowers, you can get a really good lesson in what the medicine of peach is because it's just such a sweet and beautiful experience. Cool. I've actually never, I've never done that. So I have to try sometime. You got to try it because you're helping the plant when you do that too, because they need to not have so many flowers on each part. Yeah. Instead of thinning later. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah. Makes sense. 
Do you mind uh, going over what you um, do for a grief formula? Oh, sure. I can do that. And actually, I should probably share the proportions with you um, in your show notes because I don't have them memorized, but I can share the notes with you. But um, the grief formula I have, which I want to say this, just share a part of the process because I think it's important to Mm -hmm. remember and just to say that things happen accidentally and maybe they're not accidental sometimes, but I had a friend who was, whose dad was dying in the hospital kind of suddenly, and she wanted to be able to be present with him and not take up a lot of space with her own grief because she was crying a lot and taking up a lot of space so that they couldn't really, he felt he would just want to comfort her when, oh, yeah. and that's not what needed to happen. I mean, yeah, that's fine, but she was like wanting to say goodbye <laughs> you know, without that. Right. So she asked me for something and I made something and I definitely over poured something in it. I don't remember what, but I was, so, I had an idea of what I wanted to make and I over poured something and I was like, ah, and so I was like, redid it, tried to fix it, was just moved back and forth. And so I um, ended up coming up with a combination and I can't remember how the ingredients changed with that mistake, but I had to add some different things to make up with for how much of I put up some one ingredient. Anyway, the point is, is sometimes there's accidents in the, the old apothecary lab that are very fruitful. Yeah. And um, the formula that became acute grief that I was making for her is has Hawthorne, has motherwort, which is very supportive and also a bitter. So they're, they're helping us digest our food as well as our experiences. Mm. Um, and peach leaf is in there. And then kava, because I think just taking that edge off and having a, a sense of well being when you're going through something like that is really important. Mm. Um, and a little bit of anemone to ground, um, because I, I, I think we really need that. There's a, a tension with that level of agitated grief that needs that needs some like deeply grounding medicine like anemone so those are the herbs in there I've definitely seen people put ghost pipe flower essence in it as well over time because that's a nice one if you have access to it Mm -hmm. um but yeah so basically hawthorne kava motherwort peach leaf and anemone is acute grief and and that formula has helped so many people and has just lived on its own and continues to move and change as people make it their own, which I am very happy about when the formulas go out in the world that way. I like to add rose glycerin. Oh, that's a great idea. That Mm -hmm. sounds really nice for sure. Mm -hmm. That's a good idea. And it probably makes it a little more palatable too. It's not the best, best tasting formula. Gotta say. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's still, it's tasty, but yeah, that definitely has helped me and some of my friends through some times. Wonderful. Uh, I really appreciate you putting that out there and Yeah, making that medicine. So I'm hope, yeah, hopefully people who are listening can try it out for themselves as well. Yeah. Yeah. So we're kind of closing in on the end of our time together, Janet. Is there um, anything that comes to mind that you'd like to share and talk about, um, you know, as any final thoughts? Um, you know, I can't think of much. I will say that... Um, when you guys were mentioning earlier, like the, like accepting what we can't change, this thing came to mind, Hmm. which helps me, which is, um, Angela Davis kind of inverted that. And she had, there's a quote of hers that people quote sometimes, which I like, and I just looked it up, but she said, I'm no longer accepting the things I cannot change. I am changing the things I cannot accept. Love it. And I just love that so much because while we're always kind of balancing, like how much can we take on 
what you know what are we doing like there is a place to say like i will still be working on what i cannot accept and just figuring out what that is what is what is what is worth fighting for and what deserves our energy you know and we can figure out how to tap into all of that there's so many versions of what that could look like that could be like attending the abandoned lot down the down the block from you mm-hmm. um if if what you want is to restore connection and to remember your place with the rest of life then that's one way to do that and so maybe if we could just think about all the ways we can work to change what we can't accept and what is our peace in that then that would be one way to go about it hmm. beautiful and what you said about the young people who are coming to you with these kind of stress-related diseases mm-hmm. has just been like really standing out for me. And before you go, I was wondering if there's any um, insights that you might have for people who work with or you know are like raising young people mm-hmm. um, to support them because it's like yeah. really hard times for them right now. It's really hard. Um, you know, I, getting people and kids especially out into the more than human world is so important. Like giving them the skills to connect and love plants is something that will will, will ease their stress the rest of their lives. Mm. That's absolutely something I would say. And I think that really learning all the tools that support the parasympathetic nervous system, like taking some moments to do deep breathing, using aromatic herbs to help you feel grounded and centered, like learning the tools for parasympathetic support uh, which there are a lot of, um, is something that I think you could be incorporating into, into your children's lives or the young people around you's lives by just teaching them what feels good. And that could be like walking in the woods, could be tending the garden. And there's so many ways that we can support the parasympathetic response to get us out of those modes of ac- activation. Mm. Yes, I think that's really important advice. Well, how can people find you if they would like to get in touch or study with you? Yes, I will. I should probably send you a lot of links because I have have too many things going on. But I will say that we have um, our school is terrasilvaschool.com. And you can check that out. I'm not really sure what next year is going to look like. We're still working all that out. But there will be some kind. There might be a few kinds of online options. And then we'll probably do a field trip immersion as well. Um, And so that for sure is something to check out. Uh, Our blog is radicalvitalism and .com or .life maybe you can all do that too. But that one is where we put up our thoughts on all this. And I have a couple essays I'll probably share the links with you of that I think might really just build and expand on what we talked about today. Um, And the Instagram account at Radical Vitalism is where I put up shorter thoughts and Dave sometimes too on that. And also you can find Tara Silva School on Instagram where that's going to be more medicine focused for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also Dave and I have a podcast called The Book on Fire, which we did not do last year, but we will probably return to it this winter. And um, we discuss books about the kinds of things that we're talking about and go into them. And so the last time we did it, the winter before last, we did Caliban and the Witch. And I think that that's pretty essential reading that a lot of people have trouble reading. So if you want to listen to our discussion instead of reading it, you can do that there. That's so cool. Yeah. Awesome. 
Well, thank you so much, Janet, for being here. This was such an awesome conversation. Yeah, thank you, Janet. Yeah, thanks a lot. Appreciate you guys having me for sure. Cool. Well, we'll talk soon. Ciao. Cool.